you to uh, turn your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and our text will be uh, verses 16 to 21. Acts chapter 17, uh, beginning at verse 16. And would you stand now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Well, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? And other... Uh, Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you bring some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Dad, may be seated. If you've ever uh, seen the movie Luther, based upon uh, some events of the life of uh, the 16th century Protestant reformer Martin Luther, you might remember a scene in that movie which kind of helps set the, the tenor and context of what we encounter here. If you have that's fine, because my explanation will sort of tie in uh, to our text here as we think about it. But something really interesting in the movie, it's, it's about when Luther uh, visits Rome for the first time. And you know, in, in Luther's mind, uh, Rome was deeply significant. It was the city uh, where the papacy uh, was instituted. It, it was really uh, where the mother church uh, had its seat and its throne. And so uh, Luther was quite excited to go there. And there's a scene in the movie as he's approaching the city of Rome, which sort of captures that eagerness and sense of expectation. He's, he's some way outside of the city, and he sees the skyline from where he's at. And it's everything he thought it would be. Its magnificence unfolds on the skyline and upon the horizon as he sees these towerful, these towering buildings which seem to project the economic and, and cultural significance of the city. And then, of course, also dotted on that same skyline is uh, these huge and majestic cathedrals which, which speak to the spiritual significance of the city, right? And so as he takes all of this in, there's a look upon his face of of eagerness and anticipation to go see what's inside this great town. Well, the the next scene is quite troubling because as as it shows Luther walking through the streets of the city and navigating his way uh, to St. Peter's Basilica, which is at the heart of the city of Rome, what you see is uh, Luther is being, uh, well, he's encountering pickpockets. He is solicited for prostitution. 
he sees one of the priests actually going in unto a prostitute. As there's all these things now, this, this uh, barrage of activity which is so dissonant with what she expected. Uh, in fact, he, he comes across a, a, a peddler of figurines, and the figurines are of uh, little um, um, stone-sized uh, shapes of biblical characters and of saints. Uh, there's idolatry everywhere. And then the heart of the narrative, really, that unfolds visually is now his approach to St. Peter's Basilica and the famous staircases there. And, of course, in front of the staircases is a set of tables where indulgences are being sold. And, of course, at that time, in the theology of Rome, if you bought an indulgence and you paid enough money to the church, you could spring a loved one from purgatory. So, so Luther dutifully walks up before the table and he, and he doles out his cash and he himself gets his own indulgence. I think it was for his grandfather. And, and of course, uh, the way to get that loved one sprung from purgatory is not just pay the cash and receive the indulgence, but it's to uh, walk upon your knees up the stairway, St. Peter's stairway, and, and say in Our Father at every step. And so that's what Luther does. And he's flanked before and behind by all kinds of people who are crying out fervently for God to bring this kind of, of um, release from captivity for their loved ones. So he takes step after step upon his knees, crying out the Our Father. And finally he ascends to the very top of the staircase. And what is he met by but a salesman who's selling him religious paraphernalia? And in a moment of disgust, he, he wads up that indulgence and he throws it upon the ground for the piece of trash that it really is. And this uh, look of disgust comes upon his face as if uh, he has encountered great disappointment. You see, he approached the city with all kinds of expectation. And when he encountered it, oh, he left riddled with disgust. That's exactly the sense I want you to, to have as you come into our text here. And you see in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. A man of learning and letters such as Paul must have certainly approached this city of Athens, which in antiquity was the defining seat of culture. And he must approach it with all kinds of eagerness and expectation about what he would encounter there. It was renowned for being a seat of culture. And instead of being excited about what he saw, the very first thing that Luke tells you, which gripped Paul, was not its grandeur or majesty or its cultural sophistication, but its idolatry. He, he tears open the flesh of Paul, as it were, and shows us what was going on inside of his soul. He was provoked. He was stirred to agitation and uh, gripped by a deep sense of repulsion over its idolatry. And you know, it's that deep sense of anger that led him to do what he did next, which is recorded for you in verse 17. He went into the synagogues and the marketplaces and he preached the Word of God. 
That's a very significant connector of ideas in our text because what we might expect, having just heard that he was gripped by a deep sense of revulsion about the idolatry which was rampant throughout the city, is we might have expected a case of iconoclasm to break forth and to Paul to pull out the hammers, as it were, and start smashing the idols. What he does instead is he seeks to challenge the minds of the people of Athens. He goes into the synagogues and the marketplaces and he talks with the philosophers and he brings them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that's really the heart of our story here. When we think about Paul's encounter with Athens, it's not that he engages in iconoclasm, begins to smash the idols with hammers. And what he does instead is he discerns that the real problem with Athens, and by the way, it's the real problem with every other culture since then, is that deep in the heart of man is a sense of idolatrous human autonomy. That whether it's false religion or secular philosophy, man, unaided with divine revelation, apart from those means, can by his own construct meaning and sense out of life. That's what's deep down in the heart of fallen man, is the belief that I, and maybe with a set of elite thinkers, can find meaning for myself in salvation. That I can come up with my own system of morality and religion and ethics and meaning and purpose apart from Christ and His Word and His truth, that will leave me fine. And Paul challenges all of that, not with hammers, but with the preaching of the Word of God. And so what this text shows us then is that the preached gospel is uh, adequate to challenge the most sophisticated kind of opposition to Jesus Christ, whether that's in the form of false religion or secular philosophy. The preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than adequate Uh, to change a sinner's heart. That's what we want to think about here this morning as we see Paul encountering Athens. And there's three things that I want us to consider. The place where Paul preached, the people to whom Paul preached, and the message that he preached. So let's think about the place. And, you know, uh, Paul did what you would expect him to do having been dumped off in Athens. You'll remember... He was preaching away in Berea, not Brea. And uh, all of a sudden, the, the people of the city rose up in disgust against him, led by some unbelieving Jews, and, and he has to be whisked away uh, out of town in the middle of the night. And so his travel companions bring him to this uh, great city of Athens, and then they say goodbye to him. They get back in the car and they drive home. So Paul's all by himself. And you see there in verse 16, while he was waiting... But what he did is what you and I would do if we'd gotten dropped off in the city of Athens. We'd take a windshield tour, right? A windshield tour. Uh, We would uh, see what the city looked like through the window as we drove our car down the streets. We would take in the art and the architecture and the buildings. Uh, We'd see where the city hall is. Uh, We would see where the schools were located. We'd we'd drive down the uh, the tree-lined streets. We would just want to know what's there. And all the more if it was the city like Athens. And so that's what Paul does. is He spends his time, before he does anything else, just getting a measure of what this city is all about. And obviously why he did is because Athens was renowned as the seat of great culture. 
the heyday of, um, of Athens, obviously, was what we called the golden age of Pericles, right? And if you haven't taken a, a course on Greek uh, culture or history recently, I can just explain it to you. In the 5th century, something of a urban renaissance occurred there under the reign of a, of a man named Pericles. And, and it made uh, Athens not great again, but Athens great, greater than anywhere else. It was in that 5th century when democracy begins to rise and take shape and turn Athens into this dominant city-state in really the whole world. It was during that time when uh, Pericles uh, uh, proposed a tax so that the, uh, the people of the city would contribute funds to build massive buildings. And so from that day forward, Pericles was uh, renowned as the leader of, of an era of, of the arts flourishing there with beautiful architecture and beautiful buildings. A chief among those buildings would have been the Parthenon, which to this day is a wonder of the world. It was also at that time when the great poets began to flourish. Uh, you had uh, Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides and the great Greek uh, poets come from the golden era of Pericles. It's also about this time when uh, Athens also becomes a school for the philosophers. And it's from that city come uh, the great philosophical tradition of the Greeks, of, of Socrates and, and Plato and Aristotle. It's also during this era when rhetoric begins to flourish and the formal art and study of eloquence uh, takes root. So on every measure, when you think about this city, what you think of is, is a place that was great, renowned for its magnificence. And so one commentator puts it like this, Athens was the most celebrated city. It rose to uh, unrivaled distinction and eminence in the arts and the sciences. He says, philosophy carried on its profound and subtle researches. Eloquence rose to a degree of excellence. Architecture and statuary displayed those exquisite productions. See, it, it was a place of tremendous cultural significance. And it's that backdrop to the place that really makes verse 16 stand out to you. Because instead of marveling, Paul was uh, struck with a case of provocation. And the reason is because of verse 16 says, the city was full of idols. You see, uh, renowned for being a seat of culture and learning and tremendous sophistication, uh, the city really, according to Paul, was nothing more than a swamp of idols. That, that's how you could literally translate that word, full of idols. Because it, it's made of two words sort of smushed together, one obviously being idols, and the other is a preposition, which means under. So the sense of the word would be this, that it was under idols. It was swamped by idols. He was in a sea of idolatry. And that's what provoked Paul. Because everywhere he cast his eyes to glance at the town around him, he saw idolatry. When he went to see the great art of the city, what he saw were murals pre um, uh, 
presenting and depicting uh, the great gods of the Pantheon. When, when he went to look at the buildings, the most magnificent buildings in the whole city were temples for idols. For example, the Parthenon, which sits atop the Acropolis, which is a tremendous uh, uh, outcropping of marble in the city uh, center, which you could see for miles away. And, and in the midst of that was the Parthenon, this massive, uh, beautiful, intricately constructed temple for Athena, the patron goddess of the city. And the statue of Athena is at least 40 foot tall, and there's a large golden spear that she held in her hand that writers tell us could be seen from 40 miles away on a clear day. When he walked around the marketplace, he saw all kinds of statuary for the Hermes. When he went to the city parks, he saw uh, figurines and statues for the gods of the Greek pantheon. Everywhere Paul went, he saw idols. In fact, one ancient uh, writer said that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. A city of renown, which was nothing more than a swamp of idols. And so then, we see that it was a place, not of marvel, but of provocation. And, and you have to kind of appreciate the piecing together of the ideas here in verse 16, because you're told that he was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. The observing is a verb that is, in, is really what's key here. He was constantly being provoked. That's, that's, a, that's a continuous kind of response, but he was constantly being provoked because everywhere he was turning, he was observing you see, everywhere he cast his glance, what he saw were idols, and he was provoked. You know what? It, it really kind of means make somebody really angry. We have an English word which preserves the sense and meaning of it, paroxysm. Paroxysm. Sometimes this is a word that's used to describe seizures, but really its most literal meaning is to be seized with a violent impulse. Seized with a violent impulse. That's a pretty good way of describing the meaning of this word. Provoked. Seized with a violent impulse. But the key to understanding the meaning of the term is not just seeing that it's used in the dictionary in a particular way to describe uh, violent rage, but the key to understanding the meaning of the term from Paul's perspective is to understand this is the word that is used to describe God's response to idolatry. Lots of different places in the Old Testament uh, you can see this word used, but one of them is Isaiah 65, verse 3, which record the words of the Lord about His people. He says, They are a people who continually provoke Me, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. You see, the very word that is used here to describe Paul's response has to be Paul's very own language and analysis because he was by himself, right? Luke wasn't there. Timothy and Silas weren't there. This must have been Luke's very own, or Paul's very own uh, description of how he felt that he gave Luke. And what it tells us is this is a theological and a moral assessment of what he sees. 
This is not just raw outrage. This isn't the overflow of emotion as if you're watching a Jerry Springer show. This is Paul's way of saying, this is how I assessed it from a divine perspective. I'm supposed to be wowed and, and uh, enthralled by the magnificence of a storied, an ancient city of culture, but instead, no, what he found was a city, as the old poet said, where it was easier to find a god than a man because it was a city in a swamp of idols. He was provoked because this is how God looks at idolatry. He hates it. And the reason is because he's jealous for his name. He's jealous for his name. This is how uh, uh, the Lord puts it to Moses in Exodus 34, 14. You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. You see, when God sees idolatry, He doesn't look at it as, as a work of a fine craftsman. When God sees the idolatry of men, He, he doesn't take measure of, of the genius of the art or the architecture of it all. What, what he sees there is rebellion. What he sees is someone who's stealing glory from God. And so uh, Paul responds as the Lord would, with holy anger because God's name was profaned, because these people who had been exceptionally gifted by God with tremendous creative abilities uh, used those uh, not in the worship of the Lord, but in the worship and service of corrupting religion for their own end and purpose. And so what he saw, he assessed morally and spiritually and theologically, and he was provoked. The place of Paul's preaching is significant, a city of great culture, but at the same time, a swamp of idols. Well, that brings us now to the people to whom Paul preached. And uh, this is uh, very important for us because, again, I said, the, the expectation would be perhaps if you've never read past verse 16 is, is uh, Paul gathering up the masses with hammers to smash the idols. It'd be a response, right? This is often how Christians have behaved in history uh, with a, a rash of iconoclasm. But Paul perceived that wouldn't really be effectual. It wouldn't really be effectual. Something else would be needed. So uh, what the apostle does is attack the very roots of the problem. But in order to do that, he has to encounter the people who are the, um, the manufacturers of the ideas, right? So look at verse 18. We're going to leapfrog over verse 17 for a moment. We'll tie it back in. But, but I want you to notice who the Apostle Paul uh, goes to. Luke spotlights a particular set of people. We're told that he went unto the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. See, what's important is that Paul went to the people who were the proposers of the false ideas, grounded as they were in their own sense of human autonomy. And, and one way that you could um, categorize these Epicureans and these Stoics is according to materialism and morality. If you don't quite remember the broad outlines of your course on uh, Greek philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy, let me just help you a little bit here. Uh, one reason why I do that is because uh, some of it's quite prevalent yet today. So let's think about the Epicureans. They were the materialists. And uh, interestingly enough, the Epicureans are called Epicureans because their founder was Epicurus. 
And he set up a school in Athens um, called the, the Great Garden. But his ideas were largely based upon somebody else, a man named Democritus. I don't care if you remember the name, I care if you remember the concept. Because Democritus proposed that reality is constructed by tiny little material particles, which he called atoms. No cuts. You can't reduce them any further. They're as small as they can possibly get. But all of life, he said, is made of atoms. And the way that things got here, according to Democritus, is these atoms, these uncuttable portions of physical reality, they irrationally collided with one another in space, and they constructed the magnificent world you see outside the window. Think of that, the the vastness and the deeps of the oceans... The, the majesty of the mountains all around us, the, the broad sweep of the sky with all of its stars, the complexity of the human cell, the, the wonder of what we call life. All of it's here, uh, according to Democritus, because these tiny little atoms irrationally swerved in space and uh, created this majestic world which you see. That's what Epicureans believed at their heart. It's all an accident. Oh, and by the way, it's all headed for destruction. What they believe about religion? You might think, well, the Epicureans were atheists. No. They said that the gods were made out of these same atoms. But the difference was those gods lived in a box somewhere in a space between infinity and humanity. They could care less about human beings. To, To them, the gods were entirely irrelevant because the gods were just obsessed with themselves. They didn't care whatsoever happened down here on earth. So they might as well have been atheists. God's in a box. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't intervene in life. So what do you suppose that led them to believe about you? That's the key. And what they uh, believe about humans is that you don't have an immortal soul. What you have is something that's so like, there's a shape to it, it's also constructed of atoms, and it sort of holds your body together. And they're hotter atoms and the rest of your body. They enable you to look outside to see what's going outside the windows of these eyeballs you have. But when you die, that's it. The atoms, uh, just, they just obliterate. The body decomposes and the soul is gone. There's no life after death. That's the key to understanding the Epicureans at least in terms of their philosophy of life. Because, uh, you know, what the Epicureans are known for is hedonism, right? Now, most of you are not old enough to remember this, but there used to be a time when MTV back in the 80s played music videos. And they don't anymore. They did then, except for every year, which they called the, the hedonistic weekend. And they would go to some place in South Florida and they would have live reports from people stationed on the ground there uh, to, to put on TV all the debauchery that was going on uh, due to spring break. 
They call it hedonistic weekend, and and that captures a sense of what uh, Epicureans might be like. You see, uh, Epicurus said, you you should live for pleasure. This is hedonism. You, You should live with pleasure. Just be sure to moderate your engagement in pleasure so it's not too excessive as to bring upon you negative consequences. But you see here, one of the things that Epicurus tried to preach to his disciples and and really sort of hung with them as a moral code is the worst thing in life to be is anxious. There should be no one who's anxious. Why? Because the only reason why somebody would be anxious is if there's an afterlife. The only reason why anybody would be anxious is if, if there's a day of judgment after all, where, where your life is, is weighed in the balance of some abiding moral principle which you can be judged for. But you see, if all of reality is all of these atoms and, and when you die, you just disperse to the wind and that's it. One and done, death and taxes, life and six feet under, uh, eat, drink, and, and enjoy yourself today because tomorrow we die and that's it. And why would you ever need to be anxious about anything? Because there's no soul, there's no afterlife, and there's no judgment. That's Epicureanism. Got me to thinking about a man named Francis Crick. I'm sure he was on your mind too, right? He is a a renowned uh, evolutionary theorist of a generation ago. And what he proposed was the astonishing hypothesis. Just listen to this. You may have heard it before in school. The astonishing hypothesis. You, your joys, your sorrows, your memories... Your ambitions, your sense of identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their molecules. He said, um, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. Or uh, we could make it more crude. You're just a bag of chemicals. You see, deep down inside of you, you keep thinking there's a you, right? Deep down in you, you think if you just peel back the layers and you you dug deep enough into yourself, you'd find a you. You'd have a soul. You'd have an identity. But Crick said no. All of your self-perception about some sort of personal identity is nothing more than just a, a hoax perpetuated upon you by Christians. All there is is radical materiality. All you are is a bunch of atoms. And when you die, that's it. That's a modern Epicurean. Happens to be the theory of reality that is taught in all of our schools from the time you're in kindergarten onward. All that you are is really a grand delusion. You're just a bunch of chemicals with no meaning, no purpose, no intentional origin, and certainly no future because all of it's headed toward this eternal black hole of extinction. Sound familiar? It's as old as Democritus or 
You can remember by Epicurean. That's who Paul preached to. You think what the gospel is addressed to is something outdated? No, this is cutting edge. This is what we are talking about today. So we're the Stoics. Well, they didn't have a name after their own founder. We couldn't find a guy named Larry Stoic. Uh, it's actually his name is much less uh, exciting. His name is Zeno. That's kind of a cool name. But his name is Zeno. And uh, Zeno was a materialist as well. But the difference is he's not a raw materialist like Epicurus was. In fact, uh, what he liked to emphasize was morality. And that's why the Stoics are called uh, the Pharisees of the philosophers. The Pharisees of the philosophers. Because uh, they had the same ideas about material reality being made out of what, what's physical, except for this difference. They, they said that reality is made out of the seeds of the divine. So all of life, basically, the material things you run into are just God in as many shapes. Gods are in everything. They suffuse reality with their constituent parts. But here's the quirk about it all. The gods are caught up in something that's larger than themselves called fate. And fate's irrational. Fate is impersonal. Fate's just its own thing. And it sweeps everybody up within it. You and I can't know it. No one can know it. It's just a mindless, irrational, impersonal force. And it is radically deterministic. And this is where their morality comes in. The duty of a person that makes them virtuous and moral is that whatever circumstance you have in your life, you submit to it. People often use this word at funerals. I'll never forget my aunt standing next to the casket of my uncle. And everybody went through the line, open casket, by the way, which you should never have. But that's another story. And she shook their hand with a stone-cold face. And somebody said she was very stoical. She was submitting to the moment without emotion. And that is the virtue of Stoicism, that you use logic to control feeling so that you respond with the attitude of submission to whatever fate does in your life. And the virtuous person is the person who just clenches their teeth, grinds their gums, and just drives on. Think of Dr. Spock on Star Trek. Logic controls emotion. And the person who is the most consistent and most systematic and persistent at this logic-controlling emotional responses to reality is living godliness. Moral self-sufficiency then, saved through self-control. That's the people that Paul spoke to. Again, I, I find this entirely fascinating because I'm now going to come into the message which Paul preached and start to tie these things in together so you don't feel like you're just in a college classroom learning about old stuff. 
But, but this is a very relevant message for us today here because I want you to see the very first word in your Bible in verse 17. What is it? So. You see, as we work our way into the message which Paul preached in the place of Athens to the people who are the cutting-edge philosophers, I want you to notice the first word. So. It is the word therefore, and it falls right after the description of verse 16 that Paul was provoked in his spirit by the swamp of idols. And what verse 17 does by the structuring of this verse, by the very way Luke describes what happens next, is Paul is being described in terms of his logical response to it. So... He preached. Again, this is the thing that you wouldn't have anticipated had you only read up to verse 16 and the internal sense of provocation he had at the swamp of idolatry. But instead of gathering up a crowd of people with hammers to smash the idols, Paul does something critical. He attacks the foundations of how people thought. So, look at what it says here. He reasoned with them. And that word reason is the controlling verb in the rest of verse 17 and everything else ties together around it. He reasoned in the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews. He reasoned with the God-fearing Greeks. He reasoned in the marketplace. He reasoned every day with anybody who was willing to listen. And by the way, Athens was full of people who wanted to learn. Look at verse 21. All of the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. He had a vast audience. And so what did he do? He reasoned. But the way that is uh, looked back on and described by verse 18 is significant because he here, uh, Luke qualifies what that reasoning was. That reasoning was a preaching of the gospel. Note, notice how it's described here. It says he was, um, some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler say? He seems to be a preacher, proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. See here, Luke describes that reasoning and defines it in a particular way. It was a preaching to those people in that place. What was Paul's response after he experienced this bout of provocation as he took up the gospel and he proclaimed it? I'm struck by that all by itself. It's something I think we should just pause and reflect upon just for a moment because, again, I remind you of the place in which he preached. The uh, seat of culture and antiquity and the very sophisticated thing he did in the face of that culture and before these philosophers was preach. For the last 200 years in Christianity, due to the rise of industrialism and modernity, Christians are having conversations about what is the best way to reach sophisticated modern people. You see it all the time now. How do we reach people with iPhones? There's got to be something new. 
There's got to be some means. There's got to be some technology. Well, I just, uh, I just remind you this morning, people of God, Athens wasn't a backwater. It was the cutting edge of culture. It hasn't even been close to reached in our day by its artistic, philosophical, political, and uh, artistic development. The preached word is adequate. The simplicity of the preached word of God was more than adequate. You see, if there was ever a place uh, in history uh, where the church might get outside the car and kick the tires to see whether the preaching of the word was an adequate uh, means to use to really smart, sophisticated cultural people would have been here. And Paul just uh, uh, barrels forward with the preached word. And it seems to me the reason why he could do that is because the message that he brought. I, I spent time uh, talking to you and refreshing your memory about uh, your Greek philosophy class for a reason. Because the message which Paul brought, those philosophers attacked him head on on the very ground they stood on. Notice here the summary of Paul's message. It's hard to see in the first part of verse 18 where you're told some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, yes, who's this idle babbler? It's a, it's a term of derision. It means, what is this seed picker saying? It's a word that was used of birds who would, uh, who would uh, peck away at uh, seeds in a gutter somewhere. And so figuratively, it was used of people who were long on hot air and short on substance. It was a term of derision. So some uh, listened to what he had to say and thought it was just crazy. He might as well have been uh, selling steak knives on an infomercial at 2.30 in the morning. But to others, I want you to notice the message that they heard. Uh, others, he seems to be a preacher of strange deities. Notice, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. There's your twofold message of what Paul preached. Jesus and the resurrection. And by the way, the word Jesus has a definite article before it, which would mean the Jesus, which means he preached the theology about Jesus. But let's break that down just for a moment here. Uh, Paul preaches... Uh, Jesus, he preached the humanity of Christ. R- remember when, when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost to address all of those thousands of Jews who were standing in marvel and awe at the outpouring of the phenomena and the signs of Pentecost. One of the first things that he said when he rose up to speak is, you know about this man, Jesus the Nazarene. And by which he's referring to the humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, the man who grew up in Nazareth, the one who Peter reminded them was, was the guy who went around performing miracles and preaching the word and dazzling the crowds. Humanity of Christ. And so the very first message of the Apostle Paul to the Epicureans who were steeped in materialism is he preached a flesh and blood man. He preached a flesh and blood man. He didn't preach to them a bodily, spiritual sounding, uh, mystical philosophy of reality that would blow their minds. 
He stood upon the very ground which they staked out and claimed as unique to their system of thought. We preach Jesus, a flesh and blood man. The fact that Luke says he preached the Jesus tells us that he preached the theology about him as well. And so there's a couple of concepts we can reach to in order to help us understand what it is that he preached about the Jesus. And it's found over in Acts 16.31 in Luke's description of Paul's preaching in Philippi. And you'll remember the scene there. The Philippian jailer is, um, is out of his mind believing that the prisoners had escaped and he's ready to commit suicide. And yet he finds that there's interesting things that are occurring. And so he cries out to Paul and, and he says, uh, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So what is it that he preached about the Jesus? Well, the first thing that he, he preached about the Jesus is he is a Savior from sin. He is a Savior from sin. Remember, this was the problem with the Stoics. They believed that they were saving themselves through their virtue, through their self-discipline, through the cultivation of logical powers which could bring emotion into submission. They could live a life of virtue. And to those self-righteous Pharisee of the philosophers, what Paul preached, the Savior from sin. And by doing so, he's saying, there's no one that's righteous. Not one. You see, by preaching Jesus to them, he's preaching to them that there's no other way to be saved than through the blood of the cross. And so the message that he brings here about Jesus is one which challenges their whole system of morality and their whole conception of self-righteousness through works. It's ironic to me that a world that prides itself on being able to understand the origins of reality and the purpose and meaning of life, which is really nothing, all it is is you're a bag of chemicals from nowhere, are where no now, and going nowhere later is still um, gripped by the notion that we're all good people. Don't you always hear that? We live in a culture full of gross immorality, and yet everybody looks around thinking of each other as perfectly fine people. Aren't you ever astonished by that? The heart of Paul's message to these self-righteous pharisaical philosophers is you're not righteous. You're not good enough. The Jesus, this man, this material flesh and blood Savior is how you are redeemed. He preached a Savior from sin. But he preached something else about the Savior. It's still bound up in those words of Paul to the Philippian jailers. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You see, it's not just that he preached a, a flesh and blood material Savior. He preached a Savior who was also divine. One who was Lord. One who by the very character and value of his divine person made that sacrifice for sin on the cross truly atoning. 
You see, the thing that makes Christ's sacrifice of value to redeem uh, multitudes of sinners throughout the generations is not that some man was made a martyr. What made that death saving was because there... In His humanity, He bore in His divinity the wrath of God against our sin and made that sacrifice meaningful and valuable so that, as the confessions say, it could have saved a thousand worlds. Because the infinite person who suffered there gave the value of that sacrifice an infinite value. He didn't just preach a material Savior. He preached a Savior who is also Lord, who through the dignity of His eternal person gave that sacrifice real worth. He preached, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is not the God of the Stoic philosophers, which was caught up under the hand of fate, being bullied and pushed around wherever the impersonal sovereign will of this irrational force wanted to take things. No, he preached the Lord who was the maker of the heavens and the earth and of all things material and immaterial, the one who controls them moment by moment and is carrying them towards his own divinely instituted purpose and end. Not God in the material, God over, King of kings and Lord of lords. What else did he preach? He preached Christ, the resurrection. He preached Christ... The resurrection. We have a shorthand summary because it's in the language of the crowds, the multitudes, the philosophers who were gathering around, who were not trained, who didn't fully understand, but they could make out the broad outlines. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection to people who thought ideas such as that were just stupid, ill-informed, in fact. But I want you to notice, against the backdrop of the people who Paul was preaching to, this message brings a a message of hope. Because remember, the Epicureans said, uh, it's life, and um, it's life, and six feet under after that. It's death, and it's taxes. There's no soul, there's no resurrection, there's no future. And so what does he proclaim to people who held that view? Jesus Christ the one resurrected from the dead. He preached a man who died and whose soul was commended to his father and his death and that soul was returned to his body three days later and he rose from the dead in that very same body in which he was crucified and he triumphed over it, proving life after death. And so here, Paul proclaimed in the cross and resurrection a Savior who is quite relevant to all of their supposed philosophical ideals. You see, but all this uh, is quite important to us this morning. Because remember, you see, the great urge and the great concern of, uh, of, uh, of the Epicurean system was to avoid anxiety. Don't be upset. Only an ignorant person would be upset because the only reason why you should be ignorant is because uh, there's an afterlife and judgment. Of course, we've gotten rid of all of that because we've gotten rid of God because all there is is stuff. Material things. Paul said, yeah, there are material things, and Jesus is a man, and He's a Savior. But you should be anxious, because there is a soul, there is life after death, there is a resurrection of the body, there is a day of judgment. 
And so the way to escape anxiety is to not deny the truth about reality. It's to find peace and life and hope in Jesus Christ. You see, what Paul was preaching to them was a way to relieve the problem of anxiety, but in a Christian way. It was through Christ. It was to understand that through Him there was forgiveness of sins for all the failings that you have, uh, that you have been engaged in, in your whole life. There, there's a way to deal with the problem of a guilty conscience. That's to run to, to Christ and have it sprinkled with precious blood. There is the, the reality of trying your best won't do because you can't do uh, enough. And so seek righteousness in Christ. Be justified by faith. And so then, this morning, what Paul does is challenge not just them, but all of us who are hearing this morning. I go back to that modern Epicurean Francis Crick and the foolish hypothesis, because it's as foolish as it is astonishing that all that you are, your memories, your identity, your sense of will and purpose and feeling is all just a bag of chemicals that lie pervades our whole education system and those who control the levers of media in our country. We are inundated with this message all day, every day. And I remind you this morning that it's just as much a lie now as it was then. You do have a soul. You do have a creator. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All men will be judged. And all men will spend either heaven or hell in eternity based upon how they respond to the gospel. And that's the fact. And so this morning, as we hear about Paul's preaching, the Jesus and the resurrection, there's something to be embraced here as it was on that day. The thing to be embraced is uh, that there's only one way of salvation and that's in Jesus Christ. Somebody might be saying this morning uh, we're too sophisticated nowadays. And yet I remind you that the things that control our society's captivity in terms of imagination about the meaning of life and where it all comes from is the same as it was then. It hasn't changed. Culturally we're no more sophisticated or relevant than in Athens. So, the Savior and the message which Paul preaches here is, is good for us. That message is the message Paul preached. Belief in false gods doesn't save. Belief in philosophical ideas doesn't save. Belief in being a morally good person doesn't save. Belief in vaguely mysterious and spiritual realities doesn't save. The only thing that saves is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, do you believe in that? Do you believe in that? I know it's a simple message. Paul was always told that too. He's at a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to the one who believes, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
And so this morning I set before you the same Christ that Paul preached to the philosophers and remind you that for everyone who believes in his name, there is eternal life and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for uh, the challenge of uh, the gospel to false ideology, to those caught up in idols, to those who are in the intellectual grip of philosophers who profess themselves to be wise, but who really were just fools, uh, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And Lord, it's easy for us to become under the sway and impulse of the emptiness of these ideas even today, because uh, in our heart of hearts, uh, in our secret moments, we would rather believe there is no God so that we can be God ourselves. Lord, deliver us from those kind of impulses. Help us to be humble, Heavenly Father, and to exercise faith, uh, knowing that, um, that you are our maker and that we are sinners and the only hope we have is through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, uh, we realize it's a simple message, but one with great power, because the object of our hope is one who's nothing less than the resurrection and the life, uh, that only name uh, given uh, under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. And believing uh, with that comes with a great promise that whosoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. So strengthen us with that faith that we may lay hold of this Savior unto eternal salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.